Jesus has just been arrested in the garden. Judas came out and betrayed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's been taken in to start some of his trials. 23, chapter 1. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where, where he started, even to here. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. Herod wanted a magic trick. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, You have brought this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon the Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. 
When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man was really righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen, placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an account of what happened on that awful day so many, so many generations ago. Remind us of the, the gravity of what happened. Remind us of how it happened and help us to learn from what took place that day so that we might be able to live our lives more for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Four years ago yesterday, there was a solar eclipse. Anyone remember that? Remember the solar eclipse? What did it feel like when we had the solar eclipse? Solar eclipse? I don't know if you went out and watched it, but it was happened in the morning. It was on the first day of school. So we've tracked down some of those, sun, those glasses that you could look at, and, and the kids went outside and watched it. What did it feel like to you as you watched that eclipse? What did you notice? What did you observe? It got dark. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that happened. It got dark. 
It's very quiet. It felt eerie. Surreal. Different. It got colder. I remember that very clearly. It got about 20 degrees colder in a very short period of time. It was like four minutes or something like that. You can remember maybe a little bit longer here. It was longer further south, but here it was about four minutes. But that's one of the things I remember. We were outside at our house, and, and I remember the, the winds picked up. Did that happen where you were? You know, where, we, where we live in the evening, it, got, you know, it gets windy almost every night as the sun starts to go down and, and uh, the, sun's, the sun loses its strength. The, the winds kick in and they start coming down off of the mountains up there and, and, and the cold air, you know, cold air sinks. And so the, the cooler air just starts to come down the hills and it gets a little bit breezy for us. But that's what happened when, when the sun went down. It got dark. And, and, and the winds picked up. We could see breeze starting to hit the trees, which almost never happens on a, on a normal summer day. And it got about 20 degrees colder for the duration of the eclipse. And then it got dark enough that the lights kicked on out by the driveway. I tried to take a time-lapse video of it, but my, my phone, the iPhone, I didn't use a real camera, so the phone, the uh, iris adjusted as it kept getting darker, so you can't really tell that it got darker. But you could see the lights kick on. It was an eerie feeling, I remember, when the, when the sun went out, when the light was blocked and significantly blocked. In the middle of the day, after you'd seen the sun rise, it's supposed to stay sunny, but then all of a sudden, it was dark. I don't know if it was an eclipse that happened on that day when Jesus was crucified, but from noon until about three in the afternoon, it was dark. Uh, an eclipse would certainly, would, would certainly explain what happened, although it's a long period of time for an eclipse to take place. I like to think that God actually turned off the light for, those, for that moment of time because he's all-powerful. He could have, it's well within his capability to do something like that, that it went dark. But, but things were different then. When it got dark then, when it got dark on that day, you know, it wasn't like today where we have electricity and, and when it gets dark, all the lights automatically kick on. Like here at the church, you know, this, the lights would come on after it got dark. But here in the middle of the day at noon, high noon, when it's supposed to be the sunniest and brightest, everything goes dark. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Everything being dark and, and you're out there witnessing what's taking place. You feel the winds maybe pick up and, and you feel it get colder. And you might not only get chilly, but you would feel what was happening. It's a significant moment for us as, as Christians. I'm going to kind of jump around my notes here. Verse 35, I was, as I was reading through this this last week and studying, preparing for this morning, morning <clears throat> you know, we've talked about the crucifixion a lot of times. We're probably really overly familiar with the crucifixion. We may, may even be at the point of, of over, overstimulating ourselves on the crucifixion and maybe some of the other things that have happened here have slipped our attention. But verse 35 through 39, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. This is from the NIV now. 
They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then one of the criminals, we already read, who was hanging there, also decided to join in with the insult hurling and said, aren't you the Messiah? Hey, save yourself and while you're at it, get us down from here. From how it appeared, it would appear that the, the, the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that they'd been hoping would come to save, could not be true. Because from their vantage point, the one that all the people had been celebrating for a few days earlier apparently was a fraud because the Messiah certainly wasn't going to be crucified on a Roman cross. So from their vantage point, from how they saw things, Maybe, maybe even out of, a, out of a bit for some of self-defense for, for feeling like they had been fooled for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. They joined in with the crowds mocking Jesus. If you're the Messiah, save yourself. Come down from that cross. Prove to us that you are the Messiah. They couldn't see the bigger picture of what God was doing. They didn't have the understanding of what was taking place. Maybe there was, though, another group that, that kind of, they always maybe doubted that Jesus was the Messiah and, and they, they, they felt pride in the fact that they had never been brought into the deception. <laughs> we knew it. We knew you weren't the Messiah. Look at you now. You're hanging on a cross. From their vantage point, they were the mighty ones. Jesus was dying a criminal's death. I mean, we don't ever do that, though, do we? I mean, we don't do this in our own lives. Like, like I don't know, maybe when a famous athlete chokes... We don't find some kind of enjoyment out of that, watching the athlete choke on, on the big stage. We, we, don't make a, we don't mock at you know, celebrities when their marriages end in disaster. I mean, we don't mock them for those kinds of things. We don't, we don't mock our, our, you know, the political leaders of opposing parties when they get voted out of office and belittle them. We don't do those kinds of things, certainly, today. Jesus clearly had haters. We look at it from the standpoint of believers, but Jesus clearly had people who, who hated what he was doing. They, they did not agree with what was taking place. And now that Jesus was hanging in embarrassment on the cross, the haters were able to puff themselves up with pride and mock the one that others had said was the Savior. Now, there's a phrase in here that, that, that uh, we may not understand. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, this phrase, beat their breasts, it was... It was typically a sign of mourning. It's, it's, a, it's a sign that, that says, 
can't believe this just happened. I have a hard time, though, with the context. And I, and I, I'm, I don't know, I couldn't find anyone else who thought this. The context, though, and I, I looked through about half a dozen uh, different translations to see how they handled verse 49. Half of the translations start verse 49 with and. The others start it with but. The King James, the New King James, um, the NIV, I don't know about, what was that? Felt like somebody said something. Okay. I'm hearing voices. It's all right. It's totally normal. Um, Half of the translations start verse 49 with but, the others start it with and. And all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him. So that kind of joins together. I I don't know, I mean, there aren't really a lot of, you know, the the original text doesn't have a lot of words like but and and. So it it would probably be more, more accurate to say and because it's all one thought, all one paragraph. There's no change of paragraphs here. So, but if the word is but, then it would, it would seem like it, something is wrong with, the, with what's happening because the people who are there witnessing what's taking place are mocking him, so why would they beat their breasts and mourning him? So maybe it's and, and the people who are beating their breasts are the ones who had supported Jesus watching these things. But I don't really know for sure what's taking place there. It'd be interesting to do a little bit more research. Regardless, Jesus endured tremendous ridicule while he was being tried and while he was being crucified. The innocent one, he didn't deserve this kind of treatment in any way, shape, or form. But it started back at the end of chapter 22, verse 63. They blindfolded him, beat him up, and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And the text says, they said many other insulting things to him. Twenty-three. the chief priest stood there vehemently accusing Jesus. Herod had him dressed in an elegant robe, mocking him the idea that he could be a king, and, and here he is, arrested. Herod dressed him in that robe, that robe, ridiculed him, mocked him, and then sent him back to Pilate. And the ridicule and the mocking just got more aggressive with loud shouts They insistently demanded that he be crucified, chapter 23, verse 23. While he's hanging on the cross, while he's naked on the cross, they're casting lots for his clothing at the foot of the cross. And then we already covered the mockery while he's hanging there. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the sign that was even put on the cross was put there to mock him, even though we now know that to be an accurate statement. But he saved others. Let him save himself. Save yourself, Jesus. One of the Gospels asked that question. It says, prove, you know, if you are the Messiah, prove to us that you're the Messiah by coming down off of that cross. But he never, he never, never responded. He, 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 never, he never defended himself. He never, he never tried to explain what was taking place. He never argued with his mockers. He, he, he never did anything. He just endured the suffering. 
Save yourself. Save yourself. Jesus didn't come to save himself. He came to save all of humanity. He couldn't respond to the pleas to save yourself because he wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save us. He had come to save us. Luke had already said in chapter 19, a few chapters ago, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that which was lost. Jesus couldn't come down from the cross no matter how much he might have wanted to, no matter how many times they asked him to, demanded him to. Jesus couldn't come down from the cross because he wasn't there for himself. It's a difficult thing to understand. It's hard to wrap our mind around what took place on the cross. I want to go back to the beginning of the chapter. I want to look a little bit at the crowds. I've talked about this before. I've always been, always been confused by, by what happens here. Because Pilate finds no basis for charge against him. He says, he says three times that he found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Pilate, you know, the, the governor, the, the guy that's in charge of all these people, supposed to be the one that, that upholds justice in this area, finds no basis for charge against him. He has the authority, you know, he, he, could, he could send in, <coughs> excuse me, send in soldiers to control the crowds. He's perfectly capable of, <clears throat> of getting the situation under control, but for some reason, their shouts prevailed. This is what has always been confusing to me, though, is that four days earlier, the town, or many of the town, not everyone in the town, but many in the town were shouting something very different at Jesus. Remember at the triumphal entry, Matthew chapter 21, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. While others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. No, the whole city was not shouting out Hosanna to the son of, the, son, son of David, but the whole, the whole city was stirred with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And apparently many were in that crowd shouting. But four days later, four days, everything changed from, from a crowd shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting, crucify him. How did the crowd change their mind so fast? Well, I dug into this a little bit because I, I, I wanted to try to understand this. This may not matter to you, but, but this is interesting to me. It started with tattlers. John chapter 11, this is right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Many were there, witnessed this, and when they witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days, many who were there to see it started to believe in Jesus. But some of them who were there and saw the resurrection of Lazarus go to the Pharisees and tattle on Jesus and say, this is going on. 
The Pharisees at that moment call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the, the 70, or, yeah, 70 uh, leaders of, of the uh, Sanhedrin come together and they have, they have a discussion. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, or I should say most of the Sanhedrin, plotted to take his life. Later this week, I'm going to put up uh, in Workplace, and it'll be on the podcast if you subscribe to the podcast, an audio drama kind of telling of this story that I put together a few years ago for Easter, but I ended up not using. It's from the, from the vantage point of Joseph of Arimathea, who was mentioned at the end of this chapter. Joseph was apparently in the Sanhedrin along with Nicodemus. And uh, that's so there are at least two people in the Sanhedrin who don't uh, agree with the direction that they're going. There could be others, but there weren't very many in that group. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put out a link for that for you, for you to listen to if you're interested in a more dramatic telling. I'm, just, I'm, I'm kind of putting together a lot of details. We don't have that much information about Joseph of Arimathea, but just uh, something to kind of help set the stage for what takes place in this chapter. But the Sanhedrin, or most of the Sanhedrin, decides they need to do something about it. And so they go from, from hearing and talking about it to becoming plotters. Plotters. They're plotting now Jesus' death. Mark chapter 12 says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to try to catch him in his words. So they start plotting and sending people out to try to trap Jesus so they can find a charge to, to take him and arrest him and get away with him, get him out of their sight. Verse 34 of Mark chapter 12, when Jesus saw that, they, that he had a- answered wisely, he said to the man when he's asking about, you know, the greatest commandment, and the man says, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then Mark says, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the plot, trying to catch Jesus in his words, didn't work. It wasn't going to work, so they had to change their approach. They had to change their strategy. Then Luke chapter 22, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. They're afraid of the crowd. Jesus has too many people believing in him. They're afraid of what's going to happen. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with him how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Jesus endured trials and beatings and mocking all night long. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, so here is where things seem to devolve. Pilate calls together everybody that's been involved over the course of the night. This must be the morning or maybe the very early morning hours um, of, of the day that Jesus is going to be crucified. So Pilate calls together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. 
And this, you know, if you've watched some of the videos that have been, that have been done, this is when where Pilate is, you know, from his balcony addressing the crowds. That scene that comes to your mind. And addressing the crowds, he says, you brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. And then later, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. It's still not entirely clear, at least from Luke's retelling of what's, what, what happened on those nights, what, what took place to change the crowd. Because the crowd had been something that the Pharisees were afraid of. They were worried that the crowd was going to run off with Jesus and they would lose their control and their, their ability to rule in that region. And all of a sudden, on the morning of the crucifixion, the crowds have switched over. And now they're shouting, crucify him. We have to go to Mark to get a little picture of what happened. Mark chapter 15, verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So they came up with this plot. They got Judas involved in the plot. They found the opportunity to get Jesus when he wasn't with the crowds because they probably wouldn't have been able to get Jesus if the crowd had been around him. And even though he's innocent, the chief priests, taking advantage of the opportunity when Jesus is not in the crowd, when Jesus is not there able to teach and, and, and encourage the crowd as he had done up until this point, when Jesus' voice is now silent, they take advantage of the opportunity, go into the crowd, stir up the crowd to get them to have Pilate release Barabbas. Their shouts prevailed. Where are the shouts prevailing in our lives today? Pilate seemed to truly want to release Jesus, and yet the shouts prevailed. Three times he said he's not guilty, and yet the shouts prevailed. Are there things in our lives where we honestly want to do one thing, where we want to go one direction, and yet a, a, another prevailing shout keeps us from doing so? Are there areas of our lives where we're trying to follow Jesus, we want to go the way that he wants us to go, and yet the shouts of the crowd prevail in our lives so much so that we can't do so? The shouts prevailed. I want, to, uh, I want to try to illustrate something. It's going to be a crude, rough illustration. If you'll bear with me. Yeah, no, no artistic ability will be on display. So last week we, we started talking about the idea of, of purple church and being a purple church. 
a church that's, that's committed to the mission of Jesus Christ and living missionally and not allowing ourselves to be personally motivated by our personal ambition. There's something, though, that's been going on in our world, and I've actually been doing a lot of listening and a lot of trying to understand this in the last week, trying to get a grasp on it. And this is just a rough idea. So let's, let's just say, you know, we're, we're going to talk blue and red, so we're going to talk left and right, and I don't mean anything by those statements other than that's how the terms are used in our culture. So left, because this is the left side of the board, and right, because this is the right side of the board. Here in the middle, I'm going to, I'm going to do purple. We kind of think that the purple is just this little, little category here, here in the middle, and then over here we have we have these voices. It's going to be hard to see the, the di distinction between those colors there. I apologize. But then over here, then we have the red voice. The left voices and the right voices. I'm going to use blue and red. So... Uh, this probably is no surprise to you, but I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up in uh, the Midwest. I grew up in Southeast Ohio. I grew up in a pastor's family. So I grew up in a conservative part of the country in a conservative family at a conservative church. I've, I've been born, bred, and raised in the, in the ways of conservatism my whole life. This, this has been my experience over here. I know I'm not supposed to say those kinds of things because then you might think differently of me, but I'm going to assume that you, if you disagree with me, you're going to be bigger than politics and what we're talking about right now, and you can say, oh, well, I, I love him in spite of his politics, and that's fine. Um, so, but this, this is where I've spent my whole life, right? I've, I've spent my whole life in the red, um, and... and I don't want to offend anybody. I'm really trying not to offend anybody. I hope that's clear. But there are a lot of voices, right? So um, this is a, a speaker. So there's a, a lot of voices. I could give some of them names, but I'm not going to do that because you might like them. A lot of voices shouting. And, and what, they, what, they, what they tend to all do is, I'm going to uh, show you how good I am at drawing. Here we go. You like that? Isn't that good? So, so they, they, create, you know, they create basically a villain for, for the right group of people, for the red group of people. And then, so all of these messages then have this villain that they're, that they're shouting against. Now, sometimes it might be different people, but it's still the same, same villain because it's the same ideology that, that they're shouting. So this is, this is the bad man. We don't like him. <laughs> so, so here's, here's, here's what happens. And then, then what happens is over here while we're, we're on this group, so I'll switch sides for a little bit, this message kind of comes out. And so imagine you're, you're right here, right? This is you, 
right here in the middle of it. You know, this message comes out and we listen to that, and then this message comes out and we listen to that, and this message comes out and we listen to that, and this message comes out from this person, we listen to that, and all of a sudden we find ourselves swirling amidst all these different messages that, that this person is the, the villain or this group is the villain. And so we've got, we've got to do something about it, right? And, and what happens in our world right now, because how the world works with social media and technology, is then that all the other people that think like us also end up in the same circle. And now, now we become this group on a, the, you know, the, uh, the shouters. We become the shouters to our people, right? And we start shouting this message, and then this person hears it, and it shouts this message, and, and this person hears it, and it shouts that message, and this person hears it, and they start shouting that message. And so then it just starts to fill us up with, with all of the same shouting over and over and over and over and over again until we get to the point that it's like, well, we got to do something about this. This is wrong. And then, then the exact same thing happens over here, right? So we've got all these different sources that, that are shouting a message. They shout the message, and you might be over here, and you've, you, you more, you're more in line with this, side, with this side of the board, and so you find yourself here, and their messages come and swirl. Get away from that speaker. Got to make sure I get enough of them on there so it's clear. Just how confusing all of this can be. And, and then the other people here that agree with you start shouting their message. And the, and the voices just swirl and swirl and swirl. And so it's like, we got to do something about this, right? I mean, this is, this is a big problem. And, and at the same time, we're over here at the, on the other side saying, this is a big problem. We got to do something about this. And, and then what happens, because there's nowhere else for these things to go, right? There's nowhere else for these messages and these ideas to go because you're shouting at people that agree with you. Like, something's got to be done about this. I know. We got to do something. We can't fix it. What are we going to do? I don't know. Then all of a sudden what starts happening, and this is where, where we are right now. Those of us here in the middle who have heard all these messages and maybe believe and agree all these messages, now start throwing the message to the other people. For a season, we would just throw... Throw, throw our messages, you know, to the voices that were shouting these messages. But now we throw the messages to the people. We say things like, I don't know how you could possibly believe that. What's wrong with you? You, you must be mentally... You must be mentally incapacitated if you think that's true. There was a recording from, I think it was actually from the 2016 election. Uh, there's that one guy that polls people live. I can't remember his name. But he had a mixed group of people doing polling, you know, of what, what, uh, what some politicians were saying. And, you know, they, they had been instructed to, to, to give one-line responses. And everything kind of goes all right for a little while. And then what starts happening, what was happening with the group was what was happening in society. It was that the people couldn't just give their one-line response. They had to start yelling at one another these messages that have been swirling round and around and around and around them. 
So I think this is, I think this is what happened with Jesus, is that you had some of the religious leaders, you had the crowd that was there, Jesus' voice was silent, and they go into the crowd and start spreading the message until now they're shouting the opposite of what they had believed. This is, this is probably not a surprise to you because this is how the world's working right now. This, this, is how, this is how our culture is functioning. And fortunately, there are some voices that are starting to step up and say, what can we do in this space? What are, what are some things that we can do to bring this person and this person together and help people see that it is possible to love someone that you disagree with. This, this is something I, I feel really important for us right now as a church because we're in the crowds and, and it's not going to be, you know, it's not, we're not, the government's not going to fix this problem. Social media is not going to fix this problem. These media groups and media agencies aren't going to fix this problem because their revenue streams and everything are built around this, around this model. So it's going to have to be us that fixes this problem. It's going to have to be people like us who are called by Jesus, the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. It's going to be the peacemakers that come into the middle of these discussions and sow in peace and reap the harvest of righteousness. They're going to make a difference. Something has happened in our society and in our culture that makes it almost impossible right now, I think, for, for those conversations to happen. And at the same time, a lot of assumptions are taking place from, from one group to the other. And assumptions are, are I think, one of the reasons that, that people won't even consider visiting a church because the assumption is, well, if you're a church, then you're red, you're, you're conservative, you know, if you're, if you're what was typically known as an evangelical church, then you're red, you're on the right side of things, you must have been a Trump supporter, you must have, you must have been, you know, preaching from your pulpit that, you know, everything Trump does is blessed by God, and, and then everything that, uh, that was happening on the other side is of the devil. And sadly, that was a message that has been preached in different parts of the country. We've never preached that message, but it's an assumption that's made about churches like ours. If we don't start stepping into the purple space as a church, I don't know how we're going to reach people outside the church. So somehow we have to figure out a way to, to step into the purple space. I'm, I'm thinking ways of, of ways that we can do this. One of the things we might do is we might do um, 
purple nights or whatever we call them. And we'll just like once a month, we'll get some people together and we'll have people that think differently on a, on a, on a viewpoint and, and, and try to get them to come together and, and listen to not only the ideas, but the people and hear the people's stories. Uh, we're gonna have, we want to try to help people see the, the peopleness of the people and look past the issues, right? I mean, it's like, like we walk around with, you know, with, with name, bags, name badges on and all of the issues that we believe and like put a wall up between ourselves and other people because we say this is the most important thing to me. So we can't even bridge the gap. But we want to start training. We want to start training people in our church how to be peacemakers, how to be ministers of reconciliation, reconciling ultimately people to God and the division that exists between humanity and God, but also reconciling relationships. It might take some, some training on how to do that, some training on how to deal with conflict and, and manage those kinds of things. But you've almost certainly found yourself in an environment where, where you were around people that, that didn't agree with you and you didn't feel like you belonged there anymore and you didn't feel like you could go there anymore. You maybe felt, maybe you've had some relationships severed in the last year over the blue and the red thing. So there's lots of opportunity in front of us to start bringing reconciliation. And the truth is, Jesus, I think, would be right there in the middle. And that's where it gets complicated, right? Because I can hear the voices in my head. Well, there's no way Jesus would support that. And that idea or that idea. And, and then, well, there's no way that Jesus would support that. And that idea and that idea. You just, you cannot tell me that you think Jesus would X, Y, Z. But the Roman government wasn't a particularly ethical government. It wasn't a particularly ethical institution. I don't know if you know that, but, but you know, they weren't like, you know, they weren't like built on, on any kind of, you know, Judeo-Christian ethics or anything like, like we would hope for ourselves, you know, would be happening around us. They, they weren't built on anything like that. They, they didn't have morals. They, they kind of, it was kind of like a free-for-all. Whatever you believe is what you get. And Jesus never once opposed Roman Caesar or the Roman government or anything they were doing. He never once tried to lead an insurrection from whatever side you thought he might be on and overtake them. Now, Barabbas apparently did. <laughs> and they let Barabbas out, which blows my mind. Like, Jesus is in there for insurrection and, and riling up all the people against the leaders, and so let's let out, let out another insurrectionist. But the one thing they accused him, accused him of, he actually didn't do. They said, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Did Jesus oppose payment of taxes to Caesar? No. In fact, two chapters earlier, Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Remember, brought the coin out and it had Caesar's image on it. And, and Jesus said, just give it all back. Whatever has Caesar's image on it, give it back to Caesar. It's his. Let him have it. And give back to God what is God's.